from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 24. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so that they came into being, declares the Lord? These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies for all they deserve. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day, or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breast. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees as a mother comforts her child. So I will comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, I'm about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, and to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tobal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. 
They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord and ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So will your name and descendants endure from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. This is the word of the Lord. I think, uh, you know, I was, I was talking to my wife last night about Isaiah 66. I was like, yeah, you know, like, when's the last time, like, when's the last time you read Isaiah 66? And, you know, she's, she's like, you know, I don't, I don't think I could talk about it right now with you. And uh, I was looking for the words to, to explain it to her. It's like, it's kind of punchy. <laughs> like, I didn't, you know, I mean, it's, it's. There's a lot there, and, and there's a lot to, to process, and it's like, this is, this is how Isaiah ends. This is, how, this is what God is doing. This is what God's Word says. And so we are, we are going to jump in this morning. As, as Pastor Danny uh, mentioned, we, we have been looking at these books together since, since the start of Advent, back in December. We, we've been looking at, at the books of, of Isaiah and Matthew together and, and seeing how, how, they, how they work in tandem, how, they, how, how the Lord is fulfilling His plans through what Isaiah said and, and what, what Matthew, what, what Jesus is doing. And so in, in, Isaiah, in Isaiah, we see that God, God speaks candidly about the sinful state of His people and what he intends to do about it. He doesn't sugarcoat it for us. It's in your face. A difficult road awaits them, and we've seen that. And Matthew tells us that Jesus is the promised Messiah spoken from ages past, who has come to fulfill all that God promised. Linking back to Isaiah and linking the two together, even the name Isaiah is a sign of what's to come. The name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. And the way God's salvation comes about, doesn't, it doesn't look pretty. It's not neat and clean. But it's dirty and bloody. Yet it's beautiful and glorious what God is doing. And it should come to no surprise for us that, that as we bring our series to a close here, that, that we are ending with the consummation of what Isaiah said God would do from, from the beginning. I mean, back in chapter 1, Isaiah speaks of judgment of a rebellious nation. But one of the features of the book, what what gets put on on the display racks at the storefront advertising the book of Isaiah, is that it's through judgment that God's people will find their hope. It's through judgment that they will find their hope. And it's in Christ that that is being fulfilled. Isaiah starts with, with judgment toward the rebellious city. Not a foreign nation, but God's people. In fact, Isaiah 121 tells us that the the faithful city has become a prostitute. Which is a little startling if you think about it. I mean, it's, it's definitely provocative. 
It makes you wonder if God's rescue project of wayward people actually has legs to stand on. But God's not in the middle of a course correction here. He's still very much on track. He knows what he's doing. And God's plan of action is to turn his hand against his people. Whoa. But just, just wait a minute before you, before you make an assumption about what that means. Let's not assume that we know what God is doing. Let, let's, let's give him a chance to tell us. God, what does turning your, your hand against your people do? What will turning your hand against your people do? In, in Isaiah, in, in Isaiah 125, he tells us, I will thoroughly purge, I will thoroughly purge away your dross and, remo- and remove your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. And so we hear judgment and immediately we feel, we feel discomfort. It's uncomfortable. But again, God shows us that it's by his judgment that we are healed. Think about that. We believe that. Jesus endured the cross for us. How can we look at him in, in, in any other way that removes the context of the cross from his life and all that he's accomplished for us? And by the time God's done with his people, in Isaiah 126, he says at the end of the verse, he says, You will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God is taking the rebellious city and he's making it the city of righteousness, the city of faithfulness. And so Isaiah has clued us in from the very beginning. We knew how Isaiah should end. And God is ending it the way that we, we should have expected, with the, with the faithful city coming into being. God has promised renewal a new heavens and a new earth. And so we should expect nothing less than for Isaiah to close with a picture of the faithful city coming into being. Nothing else would make sense. And is this not the news that we all need to hear, that, that God's renewal is coming into to, to being? I mean, what else did you get up for church to do this morning, to hear? Why should you come into this place if not to hear about God's renewal? His making all things new the new heavens and the new earth breaking through. We need to hear from the God who can bring about change in our lives that goes beyond our current experiences. So here's what's going on for for our purposes. Here's what we've been seeing in in Matthew and Isaiah. Matthew ends with the call to make disciples. And Isaiah ends giving us a glimpse of what a city filled with true disciples looks like. And we are walking toward this reality every day. Every day. Every day. Last week, Pastor Lawrence said that God doesn't want people who will merely mouth a few words. He wants people who will be followers of him. That's our goal. Discipleship. Real followers of Jesus Christ. Those who are consumed with a zeal for his glory. Because those who are consumed with a zeal for his glory will truly worship him in fullness of life. And what we've seen is the plans of God are being fulfilled. The suffering servant restoring Israel and making them a light to the nations the humble and contrite in spirit, people of all nations and languages inheriting the kingdom of God. Justice beginning to reign as God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Isaiah says awaits us. That's our future. So as we look at Isaiah 66 together, let's let's see what true worship is all about. Let's see what God does for people who take him seriously, who taste the victory the Lord of our salvation brings.
And the first thing we see is that true worshipers of God are humble and contrite in spirit. We see that in verse 2. That true worshipers of God are humble and contrite in spirit. Every person God has given life to was made to worship him. The problem is not that we don't worship. The problem is that we all want honor bestowed on us. And so we take matters into our own hands because we're the only ones we can trust who will actually do the job. Who will satisfy our needs. Who will do the things that we want. We're all open to the possibility of somebody giving us more power so we can do the things that we need to do. We are so hell-bent, so capable of distortion that, that we can even do this with the very words of God that he has given us to worship him. That we take his words, we take his commands, we take his instructions, and we twist it, we flip it on its head, and we seek our own good. But what God says to us is at, the, at the beginning of Isaiah 66 is that true faith and true worship will flow from hearts that are humble and contrite. And that means at least two things about the kind of people who God says are truly His. The first is that they're humble. Humility means to lay aside the incessant need for self-exaltation and to look to Christ in adoration. People who truly worship God no longer have to be consumed with what others think of them. They don't have to make sure that they get what they think they deserve. Humble people are marked by what God thinks of them in Christ. They rejoice. They're truly free. They're not bogged down by this incessant need to to think about self. They're free free to think about what Christ thinks of them and and to love and, and serve others. The second is that they're contrite. Contrition here means that that you have experienced the effects of your guilt and shame. But as one who has been healed, as one who has been healed, God's servants, the people who endure, the people who worship God with genuine faith are those who have seen the ugliness of their sinful ways and truly embrace the goodness of God's favor toward them in Christ Jesus. Those are the kind of people who look at God's, God's word with trembling and reverence who God looks at with favor and pleasure. But the reason why God begins by talking about thrones and footstools here, about about hearts and sacrifices, is because he's pointing out that you can even look the part and still be distant from God. Don't be fooled by appearances or, or traditions. Religious observance that doesn't produce a humble and contrite heart is empty and useless. It's the definition of false religion. Notice that the kinds of acts and, and, that God is calling out in verses 3 and 4 are, are appropriate religious activities. I mean, sacrificing a lamb and, and presenting a grain offering are God-sanctioned religious activities in the Old Testament. We see it time and time again. He instructs it. He, he says this is, these are good things. These are good ways of, of coming to him. But it sounds like God is saying here that, that the biblically described forms of worship in the way that they're being practiced might as well be paganism. In our day, it might as well be secularism. Because they're, they're being distorted. They're not drawing people, people closer to God. They're just trying to make demands on God. In other words, people did, they did all the things. They did all the things. They worshiped God in all the ways he said. But they did it as a means to an end. I mean, it's like, it's like teaching a two-year-old to apologize only for him to grow up and maintain the exact same attitude. 
If you've ever dealt with toddlers, you know, you know what I'm talking about here. I mean, you, you can give them the language to use, but not the heart to feel contrition. They turn and say, I, I did what you said. But it was always about more than saying the right words. It was always about more than that. Have you entered into this place this morning just to say the right words? Or are you anticipating the Lord, the Lord to transform you? To awaken you to his beauty and majesty as you participate in his kingdom coming? Do you want to show that you don't actually take God seriously? That he's really just a means to an end? Then think you can use religious activities to make yourself right with him. That you can force God's hand. That you can demand his blessing for doing what he says. Now some will hear that and they'll ask, how can you argue with someone who hears God's word and, and does it? I mean, what, what's the issue with that? What's the problem with that? But the humble and contrite don't use the word of God for selfish gain. They repent and receive the righteous one who is Christ crucified for their sins. It's a big difference. Again, some may wonder, what complaint could God reasonably have against those who follow what he says? Who hear the word and do it? But at this point, we're grasping at straws because the problem is so obvious. God knows what hearts that receive him are like. He knows where he is welcomed and where he is not. Isaiah 66, 4 says, For when I called, they did not answer. When I spoke, they did not listen. They deliberately sinned before my very eyes and chose to do what they know I despise. God speaks out against those who use religion alone to justify themselves. I mean, he says, how can you be my people? I can't even get a hold of you. I tried calling, but it always went to, to voicemail. I, I, I tried to, to email you, but you're always out of the office. I tried writing you letters, but, but it always got returned to sender. I was available. You weren't. I think there was a misunderstanding about what kind of relationship was intended here. And religious people feel content that they've done their part. But the humble and contrite in spirit, they hunger for the Lord. They hunger for Him. Church, do we come to worship with a deep hunger for the Lord? We have appetites for other good things. How about for God? Sarah and I recently started a, a Christmas tradition of, of gifting each other with a, with a date night to, to Angus Barn. It's been, it's been amazing. I, I love it. It's a, it's a great uh, joint gift to give each other. And, and there's a whole liturgy to it, right? I mean, there's, there's dressing up. There's, there's the fasting involved. Um, you know, I, I can... <laughs> yeah, I can... Yeah, I don't get to eat there that often. So I'm like, I'm ready, I'm ready for this. I'm preparing my, myself for this. And so, uh, so I, you know, I can, I, can picture the, 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 I can picture it all right now. I mean, I, the, the ambiance, the, 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 the host, the, the food, the vibe. I prepare myself for it. I'm, I'm, I, I wait it with, with great anticipation and excitement. I come to enjoy what, what, what is put before me. I look forward to it. Do you come to the Lord with that same kind of want, that same kind of enthusiasm? Maybe it's not for you, maybe it's not Angus Bar, maybe, maybe it's something else. It's fine. This isn't an advertisement for them. It's good food, but, you know. 
And does the Lord ever leave hungry those who hunger and thirst for him? Has the Lord ever left hungry those who come hungry and thirsty for him? God is telling us about the new heavens and the new earth and the kind of culture we can expect to experience. People who hunger for the Lord, who who seek dependence on him always, who aren't religious for material gain, but who seek the Lord with their very lives. Pastor Ray Ortland asked, "Why, why does God care so passionately about the authenticity of our worship? He says, because every church service is where the new creation is struggling to break in where human hearts are deciding whether their Christianity will resist the future God has promised or whether their Christianity will become the future God has promised. Our hearts are meant to be the place where the beauty of Christ breaks through. So let's humble ourselves and check our appetites. Let's stop dreaming of the futures we think we want and let's run hard after the future only God can deliver. Second, true worshipers are mastering God dependence. True worshipers are learning to master God dependence. We're dependent on the Lord, on His leading, on His provision, on His abundance. Group projects are are the worst, right? I mean, I've, I've never met anyone who thought letting their grade be dependent on someone else was a comforting thought, you know? Um, there's not the same level of responsibility. Not everybody puts in the same amount of work. Not everybody agrees about the best methods for, for, for getting the work done. It's a mess. I mean, it's just, it's awful. I hated it. You probably hated it too. We probably hated working together. But maybe I, I haven't had enough conversations with people that, that we fear in those scenarios. The, the, the slackers, the people who don't actually do the work, right? People who don't like, people who don't mind letting someone else bear the brunt of the load and, and reaping the benefits of it. And, and maybe, maybe this is the mindset. Maybe this is the mentality. This is what makes dependence on God so hard for us. We don't want to be those people. We're not those people. So why would we become those people when we approach God? We think we're slackers if, if we don't contribute. But we must understand that our learned dependence on Him is our contribution. We all have needs we know need to be met. We we know that work is required to satisfy those needs. And in fact, we we will toil in our striving because meeting our own needs is is painful. It's challenging work. It's, It's not straightforward. It's not simple. It's not always easy. But the kind of world order Isaiah describes here is nothing like we've ever encountered before. Verse 8 says, Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Meaning God's gifts are like childbirth without pain. And the kind of care God provides is like a nursing mother tending to her baby. For many of you, this is, this is very pregnant imagery. Right? I mean, it, literally, for, for some of you, like, the, if, if there's one thing that COVID has offered an, an abundance of in our church, it's, it's babies. I mean, we, we've been counting this out. I think since, since uh, January of 2021, there's either been a, the number of births or pregnancies is like up, up above the 2021 20, now. It's a lot. And there's not a single thing, there's not a single thing a newborn can do for itself. I don't know if you knew that. 
I'm experiencing that at, at this moment. There's not a single thing a newborn can do for itself. No one would argue that babies meet their own needs. They might pipe up to get the attention of somebody who can, but they don't, they don't do it themselves. They're incapable of doing it themselves. And they don't complain about what they receive because they receive what they need. Nursing mothers are a beautiful picture of the kind of care those who live on God's holy mountain will receive. The the kind of God-dependent people who live in Zion are not the slacker classmates, but the cherished babes of a parent gushing with love for them. I mean, have you you ever looked at a a, a nursing mother with a a child in in her lap? It's a precious moment. In that moment, that child is her prized possession, her all-consuming joy. Even in her exhaustion, she thinks, this child is my joy. I will delight in her no matter her needs. I will cherish her no matter what her challenges are. This is the kind of abundant care and comfort Isaiah foresees for true worshipers of God. The Lord tells us in verse 13, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. But Zion is not tending to just one child. Jerusalem is for a whole nation. We're talking about a whole nation of people from all nations and languages who rejoice in the glory of the Lord together. And the way this nation is birthed is without the toil or disappointment that gospel ministry can sometimes produce. I mean, we've we've encountered this. You've seen it. What God is setting forth here is miraculous. The message of the gospel is not met with the same kind of resistance or reluctance that our generation has become accustomed to when we we share the gospel, when we try to advance the gospel, we try to to, to tell people about the good news of Jesus and, and invite them to walk in it. But what we're seeing here is the gospel advancing effortlessly as the Lord brings the the world into his heavenly courts to adore him and be fed by him, that they receive it with gladness. Put another way, the effects of the fall are becoming a distant memory. What we are witnessing is God following through on his promises of renewal and new life, of no more pain, of no more tears, true peace, true justice. What God is describing through Isaiah is something that we've, we've never fully known before because we've never truly experienced it before. It's ahead of us. It's what awaits us. What's painlessness feel like? What's sinlessness feel like? What's a world without despair and injustice like? We'll get to see it. We'll rejoice in it. We'll live in it. This is a picture of what true worshipers who are totally dependent on God's abundance experience. God offers his servants new life, delightful comforts, peace like a river, his own presence. But to pull away from those things, to turn away, to not desire them, to reject them, That is a sobering reality. To that, God offers a rebuke. And just as the new heavens and the new earth will last, that, that will last too. And so as we turn to the last section of the chapter here, we we must consider judgment and hope together. 
And in judgment and hope, we find our, our final point here that, that true worshipers receive their reward. Life with God. True worshipers receive the reward in full. Life with God forever. A section of immense hope and blessing has verses 15 and 24 as bookends of, of, of startling judgment. I mean, this is... The, the victory of the suffering servant shows us that God willingly takes the fire of judgment upon himself. He's patient in waiting for unrepentant sinners to come to their senses and receive his grace and mercy. But he won't always delay his judgment. Eventually, he will let people go the way they will. And on that day, the Lord will look favor, favorably on the humble and contrite. But he won't mince words with the proud. Those who don't think they need God, he rebukes. According to John Oswald, arrogance, arrogance says, even if it kills me, I will do what I want. The fact is, God has made the world so that arrogance does in fact kill on a variety of levels. It kills relationships, it kills families, it kills churches, it kills companies, a variety of things. I mean, who can change the minds of people who are not only set in their own ways, but hostile to any others? The legendary John Lennon of, of, of the Beatles once said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I, need an ar- I don't need to argue that. I'm right, and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. It's one thing to be sure of yourself, right? This isn't that. It's not that. But is he right? Could Christianity really shrink back? Numbers say it's happening. But will it become a non-factor? Will Jesus become irrelevant? Not a chance. I mean, I believe that God will make John Lennon doubly wrong. God's glory will not be wasted, and he will make all things new. Why not all forms of music? He can turn things to, to worship him, to rejoice in him. It'll be glorious. In the presence of sin and suffering in our world today, I mean, it leads many to wonder, what difference does God make? The sad reality is that, that, that people don't realize he makes all the difference. We have never known a world for which God's judgment hasn't been restrained. Think about what would happen if we were truly left to our own devices. Do you feel comfortable with that? I don't feel comfortable with that. Justice will prevail. The humble and proud alike will get what they deserve. As chilling as that is, as much as we want to turn back from that, it's true. It's what God's word says. It's what he says. Final judgment is a sobering proposition. I'm not trying to hide from that. But we want justice, don't we? We want there to be justice. We, we want retribution for wrongdoing. We should want it for the wrongs that we've endured. And we should also want it for the wrongs that we've committed. But God invites us to trust him in this. To allow him to make things right. And God's anger toward, toward sin is not some, some immature temper tantrum. 
everything God touches is being made right. Being bent back into place, being restored back to health. Not once did Jesus touch something and make it worse. And through the cross, not a day goes by that abundant grace has not been made available to all who will receive it. Isaiah 66, 24 says, the Lord's servant will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against him. But the scene picture is not God destroying his enemies. The judgment of God is not rejoicing in the peril of the wayward. But it's like, as as Oswald says, to live in defiance of God's creation ordinances is to fill the world with cruelty and violence. God's work is to remove the restraining forces and let the evil that the world has chosen run its terrible course. At some point, God lets us have it our way. He lets people go the way that they will. When we experience the pain and suffering that we do, when we encounter the sin and ugliness that we do, we we are reaping the physical and spiritual conditions of our own making, whether you think you are directly responsible or not. The ways of men are destructive. That's why God is offering renewal. I mean, this isn't putting sinful people in a new world. That that wouldn't work. We don't need a, a better environment. We need transformation all around ourselves included, of of all things. And that's exactly what God is promising. And even today that is being fulfilled, though it doesn't always seem like it. I mean, talking about new heavens and a new earth can be a tough proposition for us to embrace because we, we look around and we see the kind of sadness and tragedy that surrounds us every day. I mean, maybe for some of you, you get, a, you get more of a glimpse of, of, of this new heavens, this new reality breaking through. But others, it seems more despair in their face constantly. A new heavens and a new, new earth can sometimes feel more like fantasy than destiny. But God is inviting us again to trust him. He's inviting us to believe that there is more to reality than even what our experiences convey to us. By now, some of us are, are starting to wrestle with the reality that, that all the bad things that happen in this life may, may not be fully dealt with yet. And all the good things may not be fully rewarded yet. But there will be a day when sin will end. It will be no more. There will be a day when those clothed in Christ's righteousness will experience the fullness of his reward. These incomplete realities should not lead us to apathy. They should create in us a greater hunger and longing for the things not yet to be fully revealed. So let's not live our lives today as if the things to come don't matter. Let's not make the Christian faith unbelievable to those on the outside looking in or to those on the inside starting to look out. Let's take seriously what God has invited us to hope in as we continue to gather in community, to love and encourage one another until the day, that day comes, the renewal of all things. Our endurance through the risen Christ True worshipers will receive their reward in full. Not now, but in the new heavens and the new earth to come. Those who love God with sincerity will wait on Him as our hunger grows for future glory. As we feed our souls with the truth about God. Don't grow weary of of sharing and rejoicing in His beautiful gospel. 
but persevere alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us press on as we seek to love the city the Lord has placed us in. But let's not grow too comfortable that we lose sight of the far country the Lord has been preparing for us. Matthew ends with the disciples beginning the work of evangelism and discipleship together. And we continue on this journey by God's grace and mercy. So let's trust him to see us through. That as disciples are made, God's kingdom advances on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these, these realities that you, you speak about, the new heavens and the new earth bursting through, Lord, we, put, we pray that, that they would come soon, that you would come soon, that you'd come quick. But Lord, you promise that you will help us to endure. God, that you'll see us through, that you, you hold us together. And Lord, in this time, I pray that, that we would have greater unity together as we're, getting, we're seeing the, the light bursting through of your glory and your beauty and your splendor. And as we come, Lord, would you give us a, a hunger and a thirst for you? God, some of us need a renewal of this. Even our hunger, God, would you, would you grow it? God, may we seek you with our whole, our whole hearts that our whole selves would follow. And God, that we would worship you in spirit and truth. From this day and this day forward, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.